Let's begin with prayer, and then we'll press on. Father, in this morning hour, as we come from a time of worshiping together, where even in the actions that took place in the last hour, in ways that we don't even know, have helped shape and form who we are as people and how we view the world. And so we come this morning, Lord, having already knelt to pray, having already gone to the communion rail and knelt because we are hungry for you, Lord Christ. And now we come in this time because we want to press on in the study of your word um, to help, again, shape and form the ways in which we interact with you. You've not left us without a light, Lord. You've not left us without a guide. So we thank you for your holy word and the way in which it continues to speak by the power of your Holy Spirit. And we ask in your mercy and in your kindness this morning that you would do that again, that you would open the ears of the hearers and for the one who's teaching this morning that you would help him. And Lord, if any understanding, if any encouragement in the faith happens, we will know that it was because of your work and your word and we'll be quick to give you the praise. We ask these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, we're in our last week of a three-week series that has been really helpful for me um, personally. I, I um, gave you the story you know, at the beginning of the series about my time up in Wisconsin and how at the Neshota House there is a, a seminary in the Episcopal Church and how the weekly or actually the, the daily morning and evening ritual of, of, of citing the Psalms antiphonally back and forth helped me uh, to think through, again, the importance of the Psalter in helping give us a grammar for how we pray, for how we interact with our Lord. Um, and and you, you've, you've heard me say this before, but the Psalms are, according to Martin Luther's language, a kind of tote bag for the Bible. You can find really all the major theological themes of the Bible and the affections that are at play in the Bible all there in the kind of nice briefcase that is um, the book of the Psalms. And so with all the vicissitudes of life that will meet you and will meet me, we have that prayer book of God Himself that will help give us the words that we need to pray. Um, I don't know about you, um, but if you're anything like me, the whole conversation about prayer and praying can just heap a truckload of guilt on my shoulders. I mean, prayer is a hard labor. Um, and I think it can be sometimes even be harder when we feel like we have to find the resources within ourselves to make it happen. But what we have again within the Scriptures is a gift to you and to me to help give us a kind of language for talking to God in ways that are filled with praise and also, and this is what I think you've discovered along with me through time, also talking to God in ways that are risky, in ways that are borderline offensive. I mean, the kind of thing that if someone were to get up and share a testimony, I'm giving my Baptist background now, you don't do a lot of that around here, I don't think, but, but someone, someone got up and gave a testimony, um, you know, and, and they had an open mic in front of the church and began to use some psalm language like, I'm really angry at God, we'd all begin to sweat, right? I mean, it's like, you know, get that guy off fast. Um, so here, I've had that experience, I'm sure you have too. Um, but here we have in the book of Psalms um, that kind of invitation the authorizing from God Himself to speak 
to God in ways that are risky, in ways that border on the offensive. It's a kind of, if I can use a marriage metaphor, right? The marriage metaphor would be um, there is something worse than hating your spouse, right? It, it's, it's being indifferent. That's why I heard one marital counselor one time say in a public setting, the sort of worst thing that can happen in marriage, well, that's already bad to say that because there's so many things. But one of the worst things that can happen in marriage between a husband and a spouse is the, is the silent treatment. You know, because what the silent, in other words, just start yelling, right? That, have at it. But the silent treatment is, in effect, what? It's kind of, you know, you don't, your person does not even exist right now. There's an indifference there. So the opposite between sort of love and hate or or love and friction, right, is really kind of the flip side of the same coin because you're invested in something relationally. But when you're indifferent to something, it doesn't really matter to me whether you're alive or you're dead. That's a whole other ballgame. And this is what we have in the Psalter. There's no indifference in the psalmist's relationship to God. And that means that there can be times of great disillusionment and confusion between God and ourselves, between the experiences that we're having and the faith that we confess. Like Psalm 73, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Next verse, but as for me, my foot had almost stumbled because I saw, and here's the key word, we're going to talk about this word this morning, I saw the prosperity, I saw the shalom of the wicked. In other words, the shalom, which is God's promise to His people, wholeness, true human flourishing in the presence of God, that's something that God promises to His people. And here the psalmist says, I know that you're good. I confess that to be true. I know my Nicene Creed. You just said it this morning. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. I mean, I believe that God is sovereign, that He sits on His throne, that He does not twiddle His thumbs wondering what's coming next, how He's going to react to that situation. God is sovereign. He he sits on His throne. He is ordering all things according to His own purpose and end. We believe that. We confess that to be true. I don't think the Bible will allow that us off the hook on that confession. But you've turned on the news. You've read the paper this week about what's going on in Syria. Some of those awful visuals that we've seen of children in white shrouds. With, it's, it's, you see that, right? So we live in that real world of a confession about who God is, but also looking around to the complexities of the world around us and going, that doesn't always add up to me at least in my sort of finite uh, human mind. And you know what's beautiful, I think, about the Psalter? Is the Psalter authorizes you and me to talk to God about that in ways that can sound like complaining on our ear, but are the honest expression of our confusion before Him. As He's shaping us, as He's forming us, as He's moving us toward where? The whole Psalter moves us this way, toward praise. Because life... According to the Psalter, to live is to praise, and to praise is to live. It's all of life. So this is what we've been talking about over the past few weeks. And part of the entree into this discussion about the Psalter, at least as I've tried to conceive this myself, is the way in which particular psalms function and are placed within our liturgy, within the Book of Common Prayer. So we began the first two weeks talking about morning prayer and evening prayer and seeing the ways in which Psalms of Confession, Psalm 51, open our lips. And what's the next part? 
and our mouths will show forth your praise. We saw last week how that particular verse out of Psalm 51 actually mirrors contextually the movement of our liturgy in morning prayer. And that is, we, can, we identify ourselves as sinners. We look for absolution and forgiveness. And on the far side of recognizing who we are and receiving the gift of God's grace to us again and again, then we inquire and invoke the Lord to open our lips so that we can do what we're here to do, and that is, we're here to praise. So we've seen how the morning prayer actually reflects the psalm that it quotes. I found that quite intriguing myself. And part of that whole entree, right, to see our liturgy, is to recognize via St. Augustine, who I'm, you know, if I have a man crush on a church father, he's certainly one of them. <laughs> you know, St. Saint, Saint Augustine is, um, he's incredible. And I, I told you that I taught uh, this summer up at that seminary in Wisconsin on his book on Christian doctrine. I'm interested in Augustine on that particular book because of what, the kind of insights that he gives to biblical interpretation. That's my world. That's how I pay the mortgage. So I was interested in that. But his first book, leading into the questions about how one reads the Bible correctly, helps you and me think about our whole view on the world and life. What is life about if Augustine walked in here? And we were to ask him, St. Augustine, what is life about? How do we order this complex, cacophonous life that we live in with all the voices that sort of compete around us? How do we order our lives in a kind of ordered way? Because we know that God is a God who takes the chaos and brings cosmos, Genesis 1, right? That's what he does. By the power of his word, he takes that tohu wavohu, he takes that formlessness and voidness, and he speaks into it, and now the world is here. The sun's coming up and it's going down. The tides are coming in, they're coming out. And lo and behold, the Atlantic Ocean and the Gulf of Mexico aren't going to swallow up Florida because of the power of his creative word. And so here we have Augustine saying, in all of this world that we live in, our primary identification as people, as humans, is that we are hungry, desirous people. We're not free-floating brains. We're not just cognitive people who can just read an idea and absorb it, and now let's go on and figure out something else. Give me just the facts, ma'am, just the facts. We're not hardwired that way. We're people who are desirous. We're people who have affection. And here's where Augustine would say that our hearts and our lives are shaped by the enjoyment of God so that everything that we do in this world on the horizontal side, relationally, the enjoyment of creation, the enjoyment of good friends, of family, of wine, of good food, or whatever it is, the enjoyment of all of those things are uses that focus us on the ultimate enjoyment of life, and that is God. It's a, it's a whole worldview that, uh, that Augustine gives us because we are people who are hungry. We desire. Our hearts, he said, and you know this, t-shirts are made out of this, I believe. Our hearts are restless until they find what? Rest in, in thee. And so with that recognition that we are effective people, we're desirous people, we're not just brains in a vacuum, but we're fully embodied people, that uh, we, we recognize that liturgy shapes the way in which we view the world. And there are competing liturgies all around. We talked about the liturgy of the mall last week, the swiping of the, I mean, we kneel in church, right? Or well, the liturgy of the mall embodied is the swiping of the credit card. There it is. But we embody actions, left and right, that shape the ways in which we view the world, wittingly or unwittingly, whether we know it or not. 
These things are shaping us. And they're forming us. They're forming our children. They're forming me in ways that I don't even know. And it's why it's so important within our liturgical world. And by the way, you know this. I'm preaching, teaching the choir here um, because you're Episcopalians and, and you like liturgy. And that's one of the reasons you're here. But all churches have a liturgy. Right? I mean, they all are working within some sort of embodied shape approach to worship. That uh, that is forming who we are and how we view the world. Even Not just in what we hear, not just in what we say, but even in what we do with our bodies. Kneeling, standing, moving and greeting one another with the peace. All of that is shaping and forming us. So today, our last day together, and that was quite a painfully long introduction, um, but our, our last time together, I want to look at Compline with you, if that's okay. So we did morning prayer, we did evening prayer. I'd like to look at Compline which if you are interested in looking at this, this service, how many of you have done the service of Compline before? Right. Um, I, don't know, is it, I don't know if we do, do it around Advent. Do we ever do Compline? Yeah, we have the opportunity. We're usually not down here that late. So. Yeah, it's kind of late. I, I, um, I, I was doing some reading on Compline, which is page 127 in your prayer book if you happen to have one. Uh, but I was reading something on Compline. According to, to Hatchett, who wrote this commentary in the American Prayer Book, Compline originated in the 4th century as the night prayers of the monks in their dormitories. So we're talking about a, a liturgical service that, at least according to our records, goes all the way back into the 4th century. Um, I was yanking something off the shelf the other day by Isidore of Seville, who was a, a, a 6th century, some consider him really the, one of the last of the church fathers, a, a, um, a, a, a church father from Spain, and he was talking about Compline as well as he ordered out the various offices of the day. And what is it that this the Compline, I'll give you a little personal uh, uh, anecdote here. Compline, which is an evening service of prayer, it's a night prayer, it's a before you go to bed kind of prayer. Um, Compline was one of the first liturgical activities that my wife and I, and this sort of journey that we've been on together, that my wife and I enjoyed together when we were in St. Andrews, Scotland for a couple of years. Like I tell you, that was in our PK days, right? That was, that was pre-kids, so I, we couldn't do this now. Um, but 10 o'clock at night, there in St. Andrews, Scotland, in an 11th century chapel called St. Leonard's Chapel that was only lit by candlelight, we would walk the you know, the dark road, and it was often foggy. I mean, it was, as, it was as classic, you know, Scotland as you could think right there on the seaside. We'd walk that road down by the sea, go to St. Leonard's, and the, and the St. Andrew's Choir would come in, and we would do Compline on, on Thursday nights. And, and we didn't miss it. I mean, it, it, it did something to us. I mean, we were, we were taken by this. Now, here you come to the end of the day, and at this ending hour, you recognize in gratitude that God has brought you in safety to the end of the day. You confess your sins again before you go to bed because, well, you know what? It's time to confess again. You receive the absolution. And then after that, you move into a set of three psalms. And these psalms have actually been set since Benedict's rule. Um, so th- th- these psalms have been set within Compline for quite a while. There's Psalm 4, there's Psalm 31, and Psalm 91. And there's a kind of recurring theme that one sees here within these psalms. Do you mind, uh, and I'm rec- I recognize the time, but do you mind if I read uh, some of these to you? And if you have a book on prayer, you can see it on page 128. Um, here's Psalm 4, and it's just the, just the first eight verses. Answer me when I call, O God, defender of my cause. You set me free when I am hard-pressed. Have mercy on me and hear my prayer. 
You mortals, how long will you dishonor my glory? How long will you worship dumb idols and run after false gods? Know that the Lord does wonders for the faithful. When I call upon the Lord, He will hear me. Tremble then and do not sin. And here's this kind of Compline idea. Speak to your heart in silence upon your bed. Offer the appointed sacrifice. Put your trust in the Lord. Because many are saying, oh, that we might see better times. And here's that response. We heard about contrast in the sermon today. Here's a contrast that we have in the Psalter. Oh, that we might see better times, some say. And here the psalmist says in response to that, lift up the light of your countenance upon us, O Lord. Does that sound familiar? Lift up the light of your countenance? It sounds like Aaron's blessing, doesn't it? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord let the light of His face shine upon you and His countenance be on you to grant you peace. Here He's appealing to the ironic blessing out of, out of Numbers chapter 6. Lift up the light of your countenance upon us, O Lord. You have put gladness in my heart more than when grain and wine and oil increase. I lie down in peace. Hear the word? I lie down in shalom. At once I fall asleep. For only you, Lord, make me dwell in safety. I mean, here we have, through Psalms chapter 4 through chapter 7, we have this kind of growing, um, languishing and complaining and difficult expression from humanity that they're in distress, chapter 4. Um, they, uh, their honor suffers shame. They're groaning, Psalm 5. They're languishing, sorely troubled, weary and weak, Psalm 6. Pursued and threatened, Psalm 7. And then you come to Psalm 8. And what's in Psalm 8? O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. He goes on and he says, and you've made humanity just a little lower than, in most translations, no, don't tell anybody I said this, but I do think it's true. Most translations say, and made them a little lower than the angels. But you know what it is? And made them a little lower than the, I'll give you the Hebrew word, Elohim. A little lower than the, the gods, right? I mean, in other words, humanity, whether it's the angels, the angelic beings, humanity is the crowning achievement of God's creation. Humanity is the only created entity able to carry the very image of God. So we must see that the glory, and I think this is important with Psalms chapter 4 through chapter 8, we must see that the glory and the honor of humanity is not incompatible with distress with trouble, and with weakness. When I call, O God, defender of my cause, I'm, been, I'm hard-pressed, I'm languishing, I'm in distress, my honor is suffering shame, and yet I've been created a little bit lower than the Elohim. And you see that, right? Here's a, another kind of contrast that's at play. That is that humanity in the very image of God is not immune, has not been inoculated, from the realities of this very difficult and real world that we live in. And by the way, for our Creator too, thus the Incarnation, Psalm 2, He was created in the very image of God. He didn't think it was robbery to be equal with God. But He took on Himself the form of a servant and and became like you and me. And He suffered unto death even a crossed kind of death. That's our Savior too. Our, our, our God is one who's involved in the languishing of creation and humanity as well. But notice the movement here in Psalm 4. As this shapes the way in which we view the difficulties and the complexities of our world and our lives. 
The light of His countenance shines on us. His grace is given to us. And once the recognition that the light of His countenance has shined on us, and we'll put this in proper Christian theological terms, once we recognize that the light of His countenance has shined on us in Jesus, that even, in William Cooper's language, that even behind a frowning providence, we recognize that there is a smiling face. That Jesus is smiling on us. That His countenance is not one of anger, but is one of joy and delight and contentment. He loves us. I mean, in the language of Zephaniah, He sings songs over us. Songs of joy and delight. It's a kind of Song of Solomon thing. This relationship between God and His people that's now been established as right forever in His Son. It's a lover and His wife. Enjoying all the kinds of things that as a teenage boy, I love to flip through Song of Solomon. It's like, wow! That's good stuff, right? So what do you have here with Psalm chapter 4? A motif begins to be established. A motif of, a motif of trust. It's dominant. There's a continual challenge in Psalms chapters 2 through 10 to trust and take refuge in Him. How does Psalm 2 end? Which I think, I don't know if you remember me saying this, but I think Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 are the thematic heads of the whole of the Psalter. So here's Psalm 2 that establishes Yahweh and His King, that the whole earth should submit to the King, and it ends by saying, how blessed are those who take refuge in Him. How blessed are those who take refuge in Him. And here we have this theme about taking refuge in the Lord our God which moves right then into Psalm 31. So can I read to you Psalm 31? This this is an enormous amount of theological insight and creativity to Compline, the way in which it's been put together, at least insight into the Psalter. So you move from Psalm 4, and that canonical shaping of Psalm 4 to emphasize trust and finding refuge in God. And then you go right into Psalm 31. In you, O Lord, have I taken refuge. Let me never be put to shame. Deliver me in your righteousness. Incline your ear to me. Make haste to deliver me. Be my strong rock, a castle, a fortress. Here's the, the, you might be interested in this. The Hebrew word is matzada. Does that sound familiar? Have you heard about masada, the fortress where the, the, the great Jews revolt and they died up there? He is our masada. He is our stronghold. He is our, our fortress. You're my crag. You're my stronghold. For the sake of your name, lead me and guide me. Take me out of the net that they have stretched secretly for me, for you are my tower of strength. And then listen to this. Did you know this? This is a bit of a stunner to me. Into your hands I commend my spirit. Does that sound familiar? Yes, it's one of the words from the cross, isn't it? Into your hands I commend my spirit, for you have redeemed me, O Lord, O God of truth. So here we move from Psalm chapter 4 into Psalm chapter 31. And by the way, Psalm 91 is the same. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High abides under the shadow of the Almighty. We're at nighttime now. We're about to go to sleep. The day has come to an end. And as we come to an end, we remind ourselves as we move into the perils of the evening. Right? I, I live in the south side of Birmingham. Right? And uh, I've, I, we've had some perils in the evening. Who's that guy sitting on our porch? Never seen him before. Uh, that happened once. Um, you know, it's like there's the perils in the evening. So we're about to go into that time. And here we are at the end of the evening saying, 
How blessed are those who take refuge, who find their strength, who find their protection, who find their ultimate hope in Him. To take refuge in God is to live in dependence on God alone. That God is the only necessity of our lives. You see, Compline here is shaping us. It's forming you and me and the way in which we view our lives in the world to believe, right? When the world tells us so many other things, but to believe that He is our fortress, that He is our Masada, that those are, those, they are blessed. They experience shalom. Despite all the complexities of life, there's ultimate shalom under the shadow of His wings. Don't you remember what Jesus said when He looked over Jerusalem? Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, if I were like a chicken that would, hen that would gather you under my wings, I would do so. That's the compassion of our Father in His Son by the Spirit who looks toward you and to me and says, come on under here. Find your refuge in me. I know that I'm terrifying, to use the classic theological language. I know that I'm a mysterium tremendum, a great tremendous mystery. That's scary. We heard that today in the, in the lesson to the Hebrews. I mean, when, when they were going to Mount Sinai, what, what, they told Moses, you go up there. We're not going up there. right? That's scary stuff up there. You go. And there goes Moses all by himself, right? I mean, this is, he is scary. I mean, let's just be, God is God. He's not, he's not a genie in a bottle. He's, he's not a kind of amulet that we wear around our neck or to get us a good parking spot at the ball. It's not, it's not who, that's not God. God is the creator. And yet this mysterium tremendum has come down to us in His Son to gather us in Christ under His wing. And that's how you can sleep in peace at night. I don't think you sleep in peace ultimately in any other way. But I think it's more than this as I think about Compline. And I was reflecting on this over the weekend and, and toward the end of the week last week. I also think that Compline is a kind of metaphor for our whole lives. Nighttime and death, and we're going to get heavy here, so put your seatbelt on. But nighttime and death are related to each other on the metaphorical plane, aren't they? Can I read to you from Bishop Joseph Hall, 1574 to 1656? He's a bishop at Exeter. James I, by the way, sent Joseph Hall to be a visitor to Dort when they were establishing the canons of Dort. So he's Calvinist in his thinking. Listen to what John Hall said. Um, Everything that I see furnishes me with fair monitions. There's a nice word. Fair warnings of my dissolution. If I look into my garden, there I see some flowers fading some withered. If I look to the earth, I see that that mother in whom I must lie. If I go to church, the graves that I must step over on my way show me what I must trust to. If I look to my table, death is in every dish. Since what I feed on did once live. If I look into my glass, I cannot but see death in my face. If I go to bed, and here's the Compline idea, there I meet with sleep, the image of death itself. And the sheets, (laughs) this this sounds worse when I'm saying it actually. (laughs) And, uh, And the sheets which put me in mind of my winding up. 
If I look into my study, and I've had this feeling multiple times walking in a library. If I look into my study or I walk in a library, what do all those books tell me? But they're monuments of other dead authors. Oh, my soul, how canst thou be unmindful of our parting when thou art placed with so many warnings? <laughs> and here's Compline, right? A service that brings us to the end of the day. Calvin said on his deathbed, I am conscious. This is his deathbed. And this is one of the things that Calvin really struggled with. And I love this brother. I mean, I don't know if I'd want to go get a beer with him, but I love this guy. You know, he says, I'm conscious of imperfections in all that I am and all that I do. 1564, he died that year. The Christian lives in the face of eternity. You remember that John Donne quote, uh, him, a poem that we had last week. So what do we have here in this recognition that Compline, in some sense, functions a bit like a metaphor for our lives? a gratitude that we come to the end of the day in safety, a recognition that we're about to enter into the perils of the night, and a talking to ourselves, a preaching to ourselves liturgically, that those who find shalom, that those who find peace, ultimate peace, the joy of a new morning, the light of a new day, are those who take refuge in Him. Verse 3 of Psalm 31 Be my strong rock, a castle to keep me safe. For you are my crag, my stronghold. I love that last, that last line of Rock of Ages. It's one of my favorite hymns, Francis Top Lady. While I draw this fleeting breath, and when my eyes do close in death, when I soar to worlds unknown, see thee on thy judgment throne. Rock of Ages cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. You see, Compline, and I encourage you to read this service of Compline and maybe even introduce it to your families. Compline is a funeral service for the living. It's an embodiment of our whole lives. With gratitude, we come to the end of the day thankful that God has brought us in safety here despite all the difficulties therein. And we're not talking about head in the, in the sand or in the clouds here. We're talking about real life. We plead for the grace of God in the night to protect us from our enemies as we rest in His strong tower, under His gracious wing, how blessed are those who take refuge in Him. In faith, we come to the end of our day or the end of our days, confident that God will bring us in safety to the light and the joy of the morning. One of the favorite things I ever heard from a pastor of my previous church was he would say regularly in, in various sermons, that he has told several of his friends that when he's on his deathbed and when he's dying, he wants people surrounding him telling him the truth, the gospel. So we need. And here's Compline. This reminder to us that as we come to the end of our days, that those who take refuge in him will have shalom both in this life and the life of the world to come. All right, let's bat this around. What do you want to ask? We have a few minutes. That quote really did get worse as I read it. I'm sorry about that. That's kind of heavy. Don't really want to eat a donut after that, do you? No. Any, any questions you want to fire away? Well, I'll just say, Mark, that for me, that, that gives, gives me a 
better perspective on death and, uh, uh, I guess, not necessarily less fearful, but a, a less welcoming aspect of death? I, I, you know, we have, and again, I, I didn't really mean for this morning to get rather morbid, but we have, in the modern world, especially the, the, Mer- the, the modern West, domesticated death in such a way that's rather unusual in the history of the world, right? I mean, people die in nursing homes or they get sequestered into a certain area of the hospital wing when people historically died in their homes, right, with families surrounding them. I mean, that, or, or funerals. Do you remember, like in the old days in the South, right? Where was the wake done? Well, the wake was under the living room, right? Um, so we've domesticated death in such a way that it's not before us. But in the period of the Reformation, I, I was interested in reading this, in the period of the Reformation, there was, a, there was a notion called the Ars Moriandi, the art of dying, which was a part of pastoral care. I mean, in other words, pastors within the, the Reformation period thought about the care of souls, their pastoring of people, in light of helping prepare them for their deaths. I mean, that's, uh, we like not to think about it, right? But the truth of the matter is, as the good bishop reminded us, we have to work really hard not to look at all the warnings around us to remind us of our own mortality. I mean, I've got, I mean, again, I don't want to get too dramatic here, but I have two students, students of mine, younger than, much younger than I am. Um, both of them diagnosed with a certain form of melanoma, and one of them's in a pretty precarious situation. You know, it's, I mean, he's, he's 31 years old, little girl. You know, it's, it's life is, life will come to an end. Right? Yeah, Jim. Memento Mori. Remember the death. That's a good word. Anything else? All right, we'll do. We'll do one here, and we'll call it a day. I meant to do my boy Jim. Maybe you can help me on this. It's spelled C O M P L I N E, and I'm sure it has some Latin origin that I just didn't do my homework and look it up. Anybody? Anybody can help us on that? Yes, ma'am. Okay, blessings you all. We'll see you.